Well, chapter 12 of Revelation um, begins the second half of the book. In the first half, we saw a, a general overview, if you will, of the history of the world. And then we saw the, the world's opposition to the gospel. We saw Jesus' judgment on the unbelieving nations. And we also saw what is important for us, not that the other things aren't important, but what's really important for us is the call to the church to persevere in faith while we live in this world, while we live in this time of tribulation. In the second half of Revelation, the focus switches and the focus is on uh, the behind-the-scenes characters, if you will, who are the ringleaders of the spiritual warfare against God's people. In chapters uh, 12 through 15, we're introduced to these characters, and then in chapters 16 and 20, we see their defeat and their judgment. In chapter 12, uh, we're going to see, uh, if you will, uh, the the curtains kind of pulled back to reveal uh, the main instigator of our conflict. When I say our, I'm talking about the people of God, the church. We're going to, the curtain's going to be pulled back and we're going to see this uh, main instigator of this conflict. And it's Satan. It's Satan who's behind the church's persecution. In chapters 12 through 15 of Revelation, as we'll look at over the next few weeks, teaches us what we see the Apostle Paul saying in Ephesians chapter 6. These chapters are going to show us that in more detail going to show us the church's battle. It's going to show us that uh, our enemy is not ultimately against flesh and blood, but as Ephesians chapter 6, Apostle Paul says, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. These chapters are going to show us that. In these chapters, we learn the true nature uh, of our conflict. The one ultimately trying to destroy us that we're going to see is, is Satan. In chapter 11, if you'll remember, in particular verses 1 through 14, there was a, we saw a symbolic description of the church being protected by God. That was in the first part of chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And we saw this symbolic description of the church's prophetic witness through the history of the church. God protecting the church, keeping the church, measuring the church, knowing His people, guarding them. And then that church, He's protecting and guarding their witness throughout church history. Then... When we got to the end of chapter 11, last week, the seventh trumpet was blown, and along with that came the third woe. And then here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 17, we're only looking at 1 through 6 today, but in chapter 12, verses 1 through 17, we have another symbolic description of the church being protected by God and testifying to the gospel throughout church history. So in the center of the book of Revelation... Chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, that's the center. The center of the book of Revelation, there's this announcement that Jesus is king. Remember we saw that last week. Jesus is king. The forever king. His kingdom will never end. The section before that announcement, as I just kind of went through, is matched by the section after the announcement. And they say the same thing, but they say it in different ways. God will protect His people against satanic opposition. And God's people will proclaim the gospel until the kingdom comes. That's what this is going to tell us. We heard that before. 
Then we hear that Jesus is the king. He'll rule forever. And then there's a different way of looking at this same thing again. God's people will be protected against satanic opposition. And God's people will proclaim the gospel until the kingdom comes. So if you're looking at your handout, uh, the main idea... And forgive me, if there's some funny looking words or misspelled words on there, I did that this morning. And man, I was out tired. And I, I was kind of like, I don't know what's going on in this piece of paper, but I hope it's right. And so, Satan persecutes God's people, but God is faithful to protect them. Thus, Satan fails. That's what's going on in these verses here. So, before we go any further, I want to give you uh, the need that we, that we need to go away with from looking at this passage. We need to know the danger we face as God's people in the church. We need to know that it always looks like uh, the odds are that Satan is going to win, but he always loses. And we need to know that victory has been secured and that no satanic opposition will stand against those who trust in Christ and that God can and He does protect His people. That's what we should go away with today. That's what we need to go away here, understanding. And I'll give you more applications as we go. So let's jump in here at verses 1 and 2. We see the woman with child. The woman with child. Verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, when we read the book of Revelation, particularly we read something like this, um, we need to remember that the book of Revelation is a book of symbols. There's a lot of figurative, symbolic language. And verse 1 reminds us of that by saying that what John sees is what? A great sign. And verse 1 tells us that this great sign is a woman. This woman is a sign. Does everybody understand it? This woman is a sign. She's an object of symbolic significance. Not only is the sign a woman, but the sign is a pregnant woman and she's about to give birth. And notice there, it says she's clothed with the sun. So you have this woman, a great sign, and she's pregnant, about to give birth, and she's clothed with the sun. She has the moon on her feet, and it says she has a crown on her head, and the crown is made of 12 stars or your translation, the ESV says diadems. That's the same thing. All of this uh, is kind of strange when we read it, right? A pregnant woman about to give birth and this other stuff that's going on there. All of this, the woman, the sun, the moon, and the stars is all symbolic. And you say, okay, that's the third time you've pointed that out to us. But what does it mean? That's what you're thinking, right? What does it mean? Well, the answer, and if I haven't said this, I'll say it now. When you're reading the book of the Revelation, you have to look at other places in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. When you see strange things like this, to say, have these things showed up in other places in the Bible? That's a way of interpreting the Bible, using Scripture to interpret Scripture. You have to look and you see these different things going on. You say, is there other places in the Bible? Well, we can go to help us understand this. So what does all this mean? 
Just as with all other John symbols in the book of Revelation, the answer is found, once again, looking back where, church? To the Old Testament. And particularly in this situation, to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. If you read Genesis chapter 37, if you'll remember, Joseph has a dream. Right? And in that dream... Uh, you see the same elements in Joseph's dream that you see here in the book of Revelation in the particular chapter we're in. Uh, I'll give you the short version of the dream, okay? You'll be grateful. In Joseph's dream, the sun represents his father. The moon represents his mother, Rachel, his father being Joseph. So the sun represents uh, Joseph, the moon, Rachel, and the eleven stars, or excuse me, Jacob, not Joseph, and uh, the eleven stars represent his brothers, meaning that Joseph is the twelfth star. Okay? So we go back here and we see these same elements being used here. And you might be saying, okay, but I still don't understand. Alright? At that time, in the book of Genesis, the people of God could be represented by the sun, the moon, and the twelve stars. That's what Joseph, if you remember that dream, Right? That was all symbolic. And that's those things that it represented. That gives us a pretty good indication about whom the woman here symbolically represents. The woman is a symbolic reference to the people of God. The community of faith. Out of whom, eventually, the Messiah would come through and be born. The people of Israel... The people of God, the Messiah is going to come from them. And so we, we look at this and we go, symbolically this can be applied to the church. This same symbols, this thing that's going on in Genesis, we use that to apply it here and interpret this. So this is a good indication that this woman here giving birth symbolically represents the people of God. Now the great sign continues in verse 2. She was pregnant and she's crying out in birth pains and in agony of giving birth. The woman's pregnant. She's in in painful labor. In fact, she's in agony and great suffering. Again, the woman is what? Symbolic. Which means this giving birth and this baby as well is symbolic. She's pregnant and painful. Great agony and suffering. Once more, we go to the Old Testament to help us understand that. And we go to the book of Micah, the Old Testament minor prophet Micah. And there we see Israel's exile and captivity in Babylon described as terrible, agonizing labor pains. But even in the suffering of exile, there was hope that one day the birth pains would end because Israel would give birth to a ruler who would bring an end to the exile and rescue them from their enemy. This rescue will return God's rebellious children back to Him and bring God's end-time rule over the world. Let me read you just a a portion of Micah, chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Therefore, He shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. The, wo- the woman is in painful, 
labor here. But there's hope amid the suffering. She, she is suffering. Israel, the people of God, are suffering in exile, but she's about to give birth to the Messiah who will shepherd God's flock and rule uncontested over the world. That's being prophesied there in Micah. I think it goes without saying. There's a lot riding on that birth, right? There's a lot riding on this birth. Even in the Old Testament, particularly here in the passage we're looking at, there's a lot riding on this birth. What's at stake is God's eternal plan. If this baby survives, he will come to bring the whole world under the control of God. If he survives, right? Satan has never stopped in his attempt to destroy God's eternal plan. He even knew Jesus was coming. If we've read our Bibles, we know that Satan was what? He was on a a mission, right? To kill the Messiah. Always uh, Satan was after that. That was his plan. So if this baby survives... He will come to bring the whole world under God's control. God promised that He would send a rescuer. He's always promised that. If you go back to the book of Genesis, and particularly chapter 3, verse 15, this is critical for all Christians. You need to know this verse in the Bible, among other verses. But this verse is extremely important. God promised that He would send a rescuer. He promised He would send a Savior. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God told, listen to me, God told Satan this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. Meaning, bruising the heel, meaning Jesus would die on the cross, but Jesus would what? Rise from the dead and crush the head of Satan. He would be victorious over him. And Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of the gospel. You learned something today. It didn't, we don't hear the gospel the first time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We hear the gospel for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's commonly referred to in theological terms as the proto-euangelion. Proto means first, and euangelion means good news. It's the first mention of the good news. In the presence, listen, he's telling this to Satan, but who else is in the, who's, who else is in the company there hearing this? Two people, that's all there is left. Who, who's there? Adam and Eve. In the presence of Adam and Eve, God makes a promise. It's the same promise that He made to Abraham. It's the same promise that He made to David. The fulfillment of that promise is what we see here in Revelation chapter 12. Now, I've told you from the beginning, we could turn over every rock in the book of Revelation, but I'm trying to give you what's overall going on in a particular chapter, a particular passage, and just not turning over every rock and going through every detail. And here's what I want to give you from these verses as a way of application. We can trust God to keep His Word. We can trust God to keep His Word. He said that the Messiah was going to come, and what happened? That Messiah came. God always keeps His promises. We can trust God to keep His Word. And if God says, I've marked out a people for myself, and I will protect them, they will prevail, what's going to happen, church? 
We will prevail. You can count on it. God doesn't go back on His Word. God trusts, you can trust God to keep His Word. The vision of this heavenly woman reminds us of something else. It reminds us of the mission of the church. We can trust God to keep His Word, but this passage also reminds us of the mission of the church. Her mission is to do what? This woman, to deliver Jesus. And our mission as the church is to do what? Deliver Jesus to the world. To proclaim Jesus to the world. And guess what, church? If God's given us that mission, and He's promised that that mission is going to be fulfilled, what's going to happen? The mission is going to be fulfilled through the church. Not a church, the church. All the redeemed people of God, which is made up of Churches like us. But the promise is made to the church that it will prevail. We can trust God to keep His Word. And this passage reminds us that church, we have a mission to continue taking Jesus. Continue delivering Jesus to the world. In verses 1 and 2, there's a great sign. A woman gives birth. In verses 3 and 4, there's a second sign. And we call this the opposition of the dragon. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten thorns, excuse me, horns. And on it, I told you I was tired. And on his head, seven diadems. That's a pretty gruesome looking dragon, right? It'd be one thing to to run up on a dragon one day, but he's got seven heads and ten horns. And there's crowns on there. That's a whole different story. The woman is giving birth. The woman giving birth is opposed here by a great red dragon. Who is this woman giving birth to? The Messiah. The great red dragon shows up. Notice the dragon has seven heads and ten horns. Seven is a number associated with deity. And the head is symbolic of authority. Biblically, when you hear that word head and it's talked about head, it's referring to authority. So having seven seven heads with seven crowns is about what? Authority. But we know who this person is, and we're about to figure that out, or about to talk about that. This is a counterfeit. It is divine authority being claimed by the dragon. The number 10 is significant there. It's used to express completeness. And a horn in ancient times, in Old Testament times, was a symbol of power. So you have authority and complete power here. So the ten horns of the dragon tell us that he appears to have this limitless strength and power. And just in case we're in doubt about the identity of this dragon, we won't get there this week, but if you look at verse 9, it clears this up for us. Look at verse 9. The great red dragon is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth in his And his angels were thrown down with him. So, this evil one is the evil serpent. Who in Genesis chapter 3 deceived Adam and Eve and plunged the world into sin and misery. Is he still trying to work and do his thing? Absolutely. He's still trying to do his thing. The description of the dragon also points us back. Does anybody want to guess where the dragon, where we go to discover more about this dragon? Old Testament? Exactly. 
the book of Ezekiel, chapters 29 and 32. In those passages, we can see the ruler there of an evil kingdom that's oppressing God's people, and he's figuratively referred to as a, anybody want to guess, a dragon. In the book of Daniel, we see the idea of multiple horns on a beast, which pictures a series of evil human kingdoms and rulers that will come. And here in verse 4, having these ten horns gives the idea of a large amount. And, and the seven heads with seven crowns shows that Satan claims for himself to be ultimate authority over the world. He carries this out through the wicked human rulers that do his influence and that do his will. He influences evil, wicked rulers to do his will in the world. Verse 4 continues. John is told that the dragon's tail uh, did what? It swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now, um, as with a lot of places in the book of Revelation, there is a debate about things that are going on and what they're, what they're actually picturing for us. There are some interpreters who think uh, this part of verse 4 refers to the original fall of Satan, taking one-third of the angels with him. However, uh, I think, not because I'm smarter than those guys, but just trying to read and trying to discern, uh, I think that the view of that view does two things. It misses the immediate context of what's going on and it dismisses the Old Testament background. In the immediate context, we saw in verse 1 that the stars represent the people of God. And in Daniel chapter 8, we see a description of the little horn who makes war on the host of heaven. And he throws the stars to the ground and tramples them. Many biblical scholars, and this is where I fall, not I'm a biblical scholar, but this interpretation, they believe the little horn in Daniel to be a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Google, study Antiochus, and I'll give you the short version. He was a great persecutor of the Jews, a great persecutor of God's people. He brutally executed thousands of Jews, God's people. You won't find... Uh, that name in the Bible, but that's who that particular person is, being, is that's being referred to in Daniel. You can do a search on that. You can find out more about him. But he was a great persecutor of Jews. He brutally executed thousands of God's people. I would say almost any of the great persecutors of the Old Testament period could be considered including Babylon. For example, I'm going to give you an example of why I think uh, some Old Testament examples fit this. Uh, if, you, if you read the book of Esther, that's a book in the Old Testament, Esther. God's name is never mentioned one time in that book. But you know the story if you read Esther, the king under the pressure of a man named Haman orders that what? You need to kill all these Jews. Let me stop and ask you something. If you kill all the Jews, what happens? No Messiah. Right? No Messiah comes. So you have this king under this pressure from a man named Haman. He orders that all the Jews be destroyed. Also tempting is another situation in the Bible. This time in the New Testament. King Herod. What does King Herod do? When he finds out another king has been born, what does he do? He kills all the babies under a particular age, hoping that he'll kill this king. The force behind all these examples 
is no other than the great red dragon, Satan. He hates the people of God. And what does he want to do? He wants to destroy the people of God. It could be here in Revelation 12 that John is making the same point. The dragon's hostility toward the people of God leads him to oppress them. And let's not forget Satan's attempt to stop the thing God promised back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of woman would come and crush his head. Satan hadn't forgot that. Signaling an end to his influence in God's world. I think that would explain uh, why throughout the Old Testament we see his attempts to thwart God's plan and, and kill off the people of God. Maybe even defiling them through sin. See, listen, Satan was listening that day when God said, One's coming. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Satan went away that day going. Sometimes I I believe Satan believes God's word more than we believe God's word. You know how I know that? Because ever since then, what has Satan been trying to do? He believes God. And he's doing everything he can to overthrow that plan. Notice there, um, verse 4, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she... Excuse me, so that when she bore her child, he might what? Devour it. Here's the part of the biblical story where Satan knows the Messiah is here. Satan wants to devour the Messiah, to thwart God's plan. A lot hangs in the balance here in verse 4, right? If we've been reading our Old Testament, been reading God's Word and believing what He says, we get to this point and we know there's a lot hangs in the balance here in verse 4. The dragon stands waiting to devour the baby who is Jesus. Doing so ruins God's plan. Now if we cut Revelation off right here at this verse and there was nothing else after this, what would you be thinking? Does the dragon win? Does the dragon win? In verses 5 and 6, We see the identity of the child about to be born to the woman. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron, but the child was caught up to God and to His throne. The woman, the birth has come. She gives birth to a son. Notice it's there. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That is quoted from Psalm chapter 2. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Verse 5 is referencing Psalm 2, which tells us about the one from the line of King David who is God's son. That psalm tells us that a Messiah is going to come. It's going to come from the line of King David. And by the way, that promise was made to who? King David in the book of Samuel. There's a promise made to him that from his line will come the ultimate king. Jesus, the Messiah, is born. The one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The long-appointed king and judge of all the earth. He's coming. He's here. The birth is happening. But what happens? Like I said earlier, if it was cut off right here, what's the question in your mind going? Does the dragon get the baby? But aren't you glad we got the rest of this? Look what it says. And her child was caught up to God and to His throne. 
The dragon's waiting, ready to devour and take out the Messiah. He's ready to get... I'm finally reached a point where I'm going to overthrow this plan of God that He's going to send this person, He's going to crush my head. And what what happens to this child? He's caught up to God and just thrown. And we know that this baby that's being born, this is symbolic, but we know uh, this is God's fulfillment of His Word that the Messiah is coming. So John's vision here, if you're like me, you're reading this, you're going, what? John's vision skips the ministry and death of Jesus and goes straight to what? Jesus ascending back to heaven. That's that's what's being talked about here. Her child was called up to God into His throne. So John skips everything in the life of Jesus other than His resurrection being ascended back to heaven. So why skip all the other details about... Christ's earthly ministry. No mention of miracles. No mention of crucifixion. Just born, boom, ascended to heaven. Why just the birth and the ascension? I think Jesus' ascension actually pictures the entirety of His earthly life. Even His death on the cross as a defeat of Satan and the success of God's plan. Jesus' ascension was a visible display of a victorious conquering king who reigns over all things from the throne of God. When Jesus died on the cross, it looked like what? Help me out here. When Jesus died on the cross, if you're Satan, what what did it look like? I won. I finally got to the point where I've killed this Messiah. It looks like Satan's won, but God turned what looked like certain and total defeat into victory that saves the world. When it looked like evil had won, Jesus rose from the dead decisively and forever defeating Satan. That's when he crushed the head of the serpent. Satan bruised his heel on the cross, but Jesus rose to the dead and crushed the head of Satan. Satan thought for sure that Jesus was defeated at the cross. I've won. Only three days later to discover he had actually lost when Jesus rose from the dead. It was ultimate defeat. Satan Looks for an enemy to take his anger out on now. And who do you think that enemy is that he's going to go after now? That he couldn't get Jesus, but I'll go after somebody. Who's that he's going to go after? That's right. Next week we'll see it a little more clearly, but for now, verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Verse 6 is symbolic picture of God protecting the church after the ascension of Jesus. Who's Satan going to go after now? I'm going to go after the church. I'm going to go after them. Verse 6 is a symbolic picture of God protecting the church after the ascension of Jesus. Once again, we have to go back to the Old Testament and understand this wilderness imagery. After Israel's exodus from slavery in Egypt, where did they go? The wilderness. Before they got to what? The promised land. Oh, so we need to apply that to us as well? Yes, in reading about that, you see that the wilderness was no easy place, right? What happened to Israel, God's people? Were they attacked by enemies? Yes. Were they tempted to lose faith in God? Yes. And tempted by the immorality of the nations around them? Yes. But in the wilderness, God protected His people from ultimate destruction 
and brought His believing people to where? The promised land, that land of rest. See, that actually happened in the Old Testament. That's a real thing in history, but here's what we got to understand. The wilderness and the people of God going through the wilderness and going into the promised land is a picture for who? Us. In the wilderness, one day to be taken to the promised land. And if God fulfilled His promise then, is He going to fulfill it now? Yes, He is. He's going to protect His people. Verse 6, God has prepared a place for the church in the wilderness. That's here and now. Where He cares for her. He nurses her, there it says, for 1,260 days. Which I've said a couple of times, this symbolizes the entire time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. During the wilderness, during our time away from our real home, let me say that again, during our time away from our real home, God protects His people from destruction, spiritual destruction. However, Satan is not prevented from persecuting the church or tempting them to stray. Just like He did the children of Israel. But in the wilderness, what does God do? He nourishes, He protects His people. Nothing can separate us from God. If you read your New Testament carefully, you see this analogy all through the New Testament for the Christian life. We've been set free from slavery to sin and Satan, and still there's a spiritual warfare with Satan in our temporary home, in the wilderness, until we land safely on Canaan's side. Here's the bottom line, church. We're going to suffer as long as we're in this world. The rest comes in the new heavens and the new earth. And just as He did with His people in the Old Testament... God in this life now guides His people and He keeps them until He brings them home to live with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. There's not much I would ever guarantee in life. There's one thing I'll guarantee you. That God's going to keep His church. We're going to prevail. And one day the new heavens and the new earth will come. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. Nothing can stop God's plan. Not even Satan Himself. God will protect us and will persevere us to the very end. But in the meantime, just like in the wilderness for the children of Israel, struggle, immorality, tempting us, falling away from the faith, tempting us. Here's what I would say as a way of applying this. What a wonderful assurance to know that while this life, the wilderness may be a place of suffering and trial, It's not a place where God's protecting and sustaining grace cannot keep us. (coughs) Let me give you about three or four things here to help us to apply this. Christian, you cannot. I struggle with this as well. I pray for forgiveness for this. How many times during the week? You cannot think of this world as your final home. Now is a time of wilderness journey. This life is a time of testing and preparation for your real home when Jesus comes back. That's what this life's for, is to prepare you for the real home. You need to understand that the current world, under the influence of Satan, is going to be hostile to you. Does that mean we've become doormats and just take it? No, but we need to understand that. 
In John chapter 15, verse 19, if you were of the world, this is Jesus, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What is Jesus, our Savior, saying to His church? They hated me. You just might as well look out. It's going to happen. In order to stand firm during the wilderness, you must. You must be spiritually strong and biblically wise. And here's what I would say. You can't wage war in this life with wealth, power, or anything else. You cannot win in this life outside of prayer, God's Word, and holy lives. Those are the three things you fight and win with in this world. Prayer, God's Word, and holy lives. Second, Christian, the church, the time in which we live is a time of suffering affliction. How many times have I said that today in the past few weeks? And yet, the wilderness, here's what we've got to understand. I have a hard time with this too. And yet, the wilderness is designed by God as a place of safety and once again preparing us for the new heavens and new earth. By moving ourselves away from the ungodliness of the world, you Christian are preserved from the destruction of sin. God provides nourishment in the wilderness. He feeds His church with His Word, making faith grow strong, even in affliction. The wilderness is a place where we draw near to Him in life, learning to rely on Him. I can tell you from personal experience, some of you could give testimony after testimony after testimony in the hardest, darkest, most difficult days of your life. Trusting in Jesus has grown sweeter and your faith has grown stronger than it ever has when you weren't suffering. Am I right? Third, you need to remember that your enemy is a defeated enemy. Jesus has conquered sin, Satan, death, hell, and the grave. And He's promised to return and end the war that we're in right now. He's promised that. And if God promises something, what's going to happen, church? It's going to happen. There are going to be battles that we must fight. The stands we take on God's Word may prove to be costly. But we stand nonetheless, right? Let me say that again. The stands we take on God's Word may prove to be costly. But we stand for Jesus and His Word. And here's the last one. Do you want to know true significance in this life? I'm talking to Christians. Do you want to know true significance and purpose and fulfillment in this life? Stand firm in the faith and bear testimony to the glory of God's kingdom. Can I tell you something, Christian? You may be genuinely born again, but if you're looking to this world to satisfy you and give you contentment and happiness, what a waste of your life. What an absolute waste of your life. The true significance in this life comes when we stand firm in the faith and we bear testimony to the glory of God and His kingdom is coming. 